Let's go. Parshas Emar. We're starting off at chapter 21. Um, and I'm not even going to ask if anybody had a chance to look at the Parsha because it's Monday. And the only reason I had a chance to look at the Parsha is because I was teaching. So, okay. So the beginning of the Parsha, let's look through it a little bit together. The beginning we have, we're going to come back to the first Pasuk afterwards. Hashem says to Moshe, Emar ala Kohanim b'nei Aaron, go speak to the, the Kohanim, the children of Aaron, and say to them, L'nefesh lo a Kohen is not allowed to become impure to anybody, okay? And, we're going to, and the Torah is going to continue on about uh, a Kohen is allowed to become impure, meaning go to a cemetery, go to a funeral for his seven close relatives, a wife, a mother, a father, a sister, a bro- a, an unmarried sister, a brother, and children. Okay? So that's, it. that's it. Okay? And then the Kohen, and then it's going to talk about who a Kohen is allowed to marry, and it talks about what they're not allowed to when, they, when they're in mourning, which we, if you remember from last week, when we were talking in Parshas Kedoshim, things that the, they're talking about people are not allowed to do, you're not allowed to pull your hair out or make scratches in your body for a dead, when you hear bad, yeah? Does anybody sound dumb? Does this sound vaguely familiar to anybody? Thank yeah. you. Okay, so now it's a prohibition specifically for the Kohanim. Last week, we were talking about all kinds of mitzvahs that were specific to the Jewish people, and now we're zoning in on the Kohanim, different things that they're not allowed to do if they have, like they're not allowed to make these scratches or these pulling their hair out their beard for the dead. It talks about, again, for Kohanim Kedoshim you, that they should be holy. Um, and then it talks, about, and they, it talks about that they're supposed to eat the holy things, uh, parts of Karbanis, it talks about who a Kohen is allowed, and actually talks about who they're not allowed to marry, and then in Pasuk Yud, it talks about a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, is not even allowed to go to any of those funerals, okay? Um, it's interesting, parenthetically, random, random fun fact, what is the one funeral that a Kohen Gadol is allowed to go to? His own. <laughs> <laughs> Was that, okay. That was Okay, well, yeah, yeah. No, 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 he's not allowed to do any of those. No, no, no. The only one that a coin got... There is no one who can bury Exactly. There's something called a mace mitzvah. If they find a dead body and the person has no known relatives, the coin got is allowed to go to... That was good. That was a good one, by the way. That was good, though. Could you imagine if you can't go to your own funeral? That would really be awkward. Yes, yeah, so if, you, if there is a May Smith for somebody who dies and they don't, ha- they don't know who the person is and they don't know, they need people to, to bury him, the Kohen God is allowed to go for that, which is an interesting um, sidebar. Um, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. You can't go for your mother, your father, you can go for some random person who nobody knows. I don't, I don't understand it, but there's a lot of things I don't understand. Okay. Um, the next thing, the sh- Shani, the second Aliyah, um, so Kohen Gadol has, sorry, just like the Kohen Gadol also has fewer funerals that he's allowed to go to. There are fewer people that a Kohen Gadol is allowed to marry. Then Shani talks about what's called mum, a mum, a Kohen Gadol that has any kind of blemish is not allowed to serve in the Beis HaMikdash, okay? Um, all different kinds of random stuff. Some of them are like, okay, some of them, some of them we understand, some of them we don't understand. We're going to get back to this whole situation soon. Um, it talks about what kind of, anybody want to, what kind of uh, mumim in Shani, in the second Aliyah, invalidated Kohen from? <laughs> Abnormally long eyebrows. <laughs> Abnormally long eyebrows. 
we, know, we understand a broken arm, a broken leg, that's a temporary thing. When it's healed, he's allowed to serve. If he has a unibrow, if he has crushed testicles, all different kinds of random things that um, he's not allowed to, he's not allowed to, to do the avoida. There's all kinds of very interesting things. Like a flat, like very flat, I guess. There's all different kinds of, there's all different kinds of uh, mumim that they're called, all kinds of different blemishes that invalidate a Kohen to be the conduit to bring a carbon. They are still allowed to eat from the carbonis, and there's other, there's other service in the base HaMikdash that they are allowed to do. They're allowed to do, like, sort of, you know, like the people who get to do the scenery? <laughs> you know, the behind-the-scenes guys? They get to do all those kind of things, but they can't actually bring a carbon. We're going to hopefully touch on that soon. I just want to get through the parsha first. Okay, then we have a talk about... And then we talk about um, uh, about okay. We're having more. We're talking about being being for them to be for a kohen not to get tummy for other different uh, different places, different emissions that happens with a kohen that he's and when he is tame, then he's not allowed to eat from the karbanas, go into the base hamikdash, um, touch all different kinds of holy stuff, which we understand. Um, and some of them last till the night. Some of them last for a week. All different kinds of things that are going on. The next thing we have is... Um, talk. Uh, okay, here we are. Okay, in Shlishi, we start talking about animals. Animals that can be brought as a carbon. And what kind of mum, what kind of blemish in an animal is going to invalidate an, uh, an animal for being a carbon. Okay. And you're going to find that they actually, to a certain degree, mimic human uh, blemishes a little bit. Um, so here we have the uh, here we have the prohibition against against castration. I don't know what that means for animal population control. I'm just saying that it's a biblical prohibition. Um, okay, how long could, that animal can't be brought for a sacrifice before it's a week old? Okay, and then from Revi'i, almost till the end, we start going through the holidays. All the holidays, and we've had them before. We've had a listing of the holidays before. We're actually, the holidays are actually going to be mentioned five times in the Torah, the listing of the holidays. This from Parsha's Emar is where the Torah reading is for a specific holiday. So if you take a look, Elam Hashem, Asher Tikro, Mikrai Kaidish, these are times that we call, we make them holy. And this is also because back in the day, how did they establish holidays? Harvest. By the moon. Mm-hmm. By the moon and by the... Sun? No, no, by the moon, but they needed witnesses. Mm-hmm. Remember? They, they, so, the, so, the basin, so the basin would call, they would declare the day Rosh Chodesh, and then the days would then, the holidays would then be called. So it's the, the difference, for example, between Shabbos and Yontif is that Shabbos comes every seven days. You, you don't have to think it. You don't have to do anything for it. It's, it comes every seven days. But Yantif, there is a human element in that, making that day holy, um, because you need, well, not today, but back in the day, you needed the basin, you needed the witnesses, and you needed the basin to proclaim Rosh Chodesh, and then they would say, okay, in X amount of days, it will be Pesach, based on when Rosh Chodesh was called. So there was this human element in creating the sanctity. Now, today, we have a perpetual calendar, as we know, so we're not... We, it's sort of done in, perp, in perpetuity, perpetu, perpetuity. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think so. So, um, so we don't, we're not having this witnesses in the whole situation, but it is the human in, involvement in creating a holiday like this. You know, you talk about it. For Chodesh is on Monday or Tuesday, that means, well, what day will be Pesach. So it isn't... It's, what you meant now. No, Okay, so the first thing that we have over here is, we have the, we talked about Shabbos, which we know is not called by people, but is from Hashem. And then we have the holidays. We're going to talk about, uh, first we're going to have, who's following along with me? What's the first holiday we have over here? Pesach. Pesach, okay. And it's going to give us a couple of laws about Pesach. And then what are we going to have after Pesach? The Omer. The Omer. So if you t- stop for a second, just because like, this is where we are. And I want to just look at the Pesukim inside for a second. Okay. Um, uh, where are we? Chapter 23, verse 15. It's talking about the, the, the challah that you're supposed to bring. And if you take a look at verse 15, this is like, this is what we're doing right now, right? Who's going to read for us? You shall count for yourself from the morrow of the rest day, from the day when you bring the omer of the waving, seven weeks it shall be complete. Until the morrow of the seventh week, you shall count 50 days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to Hashem. Okay, so first of all, what we skipped over was the actual bringing of the Omer offering. And the, and the Gemara has a whole conversation about how they brought the Omer offering. It was a whole back and forth ritual that would go. And they would say, is this my, is this my, I know how to pronounce it, spell it, but I can't, S-C-Y-T-H-E. Sorry. Yeah? See. I think she's right. See. Whatever is it, it is. Magal, in Hebrew, so Magal. This is a Magal. Yes, yes. No, no. We're going to start cutting. We're going to do the whole thing. Um. And I'm not getting into all the chassidus that I'm sure everybody's been learning about Omer. I just want to, it always, I know it's a stupid thing, but it always is exciting for me when I see things in the Chumash. Like, we talk about it all the time, we have it all the time, and here it is. And this is literally the time period that we're in, and we're working on that transformation space, that place of reconnecting to Hashem. Um, so that's, I'm, again, you've talked about this a lot in different classes, and I'm not going to belabor the point, but I just wanted to like, it's here in the Chumash this week. We're having uh, the mitzvah of bringing the Omer and the, the conversation about Shavuos. You'll notice that Shavuos is the only holiday that doesn't have a date in the Chumash. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell us on the 14th of this is. And in the times of the Gemara, the, the uh, Shavuos can actually work out on either like the 5th, the 6th, or the 7th. Like depending on Rosh Chodesh. Was Rosh Chodesh one day or two days? And da-da-da. There was like a spread for what it could be. The interesting random fact about Shavuos is because it doesn't have a date, um, and this I guess is maybe a more modern uh, situation, um, people who cross the date line run into issues with Shavuos. So like when we were, when I was like in high school and seminary, we had people from, Aust- from Australia who used to come to spend Yantif with the Rebbe. And very often they would cross the date line. So because you have to count 49 days and on the 50th day it's Shavuos, the Australians would often have their own minion because they hit 50 before we hit 50. Wow. So it's a, it's a personal count, meaning... It, by and large, it's like we're all doing it together. So today, it's it's set on the sixth of the sixth of Sivan. But if you end up crossing the date line in the in either direction, you're going to run into those kind of issues, which is kind of interesting. Like I actually know people who had to do that. 
I don't know what her situation is going to be. I don't know how she's traveling. And there's ways to travel that you don't cross the date line. But uh, that's why a lot of times people would, I think to Israel you don't pass the date line. Depends how you go. But like it's from Australia to America. You don't go around that way. So I thought that was interesting. Um, so we, so, and, and, and if in, one of the interesting things that I saw about it, Justam, is also um, the Torah doesn't give us a reason for Shavuos. It just tells us, count the 49 days, and on the 50th day, you're going to have Shavuos. And we know why we have Shavuos? Torah. Because we got the Torah, exactly. Because of the giving of the Torah. So one of the Mepharshim talks about the idea that there's no date that Torah was given to us, because Torah is given to us every day. And it's our place to step up and receive it every single day, because if, it, if that was the day that Torah is given, well, the rest of the year, we're off the hook. But Torah is being given to us every single day, and the way we make the bracha in the morning on Torah is no saint HaTorah who gives us the Torah. That means every single day we are in fact receiving Torah anew. And that's one of the, one of the, the thoughts about why there's no date for Shavuos um, in, the, in the Chumash. Okay, then we have, uh, then we have the, the Shavuos, the procedure for Shavuos, where they brought the Chala. Um, and then we have, anybody, in Hamishi, Chapter 23, exactly, 23, verse 24, we have Rosh Hashanah, and then we have, huh? If you don't have, we have, we had Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, Pesach, Shavuos. Then we have Rosh Hashanah, okay, and then what do you have after Rosh Hashanah? You skipped one. What? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. <laughs> Oops. Skip that one. Yeah, skip Yom Kippur. Okay. And then we have Sukkis, and we have the whole thing of taking the four kinds, Da, 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 which I feel like we've spoken a lot about at the beginning of the year, so we're not going to go in. I just want to like, we're just going to run through this a second. Okay, now, okay, now in uh, chapter 24, okay, we have over here, we're starting off with the commandment to make pure olive oil for an eternal light, okay? This is... So it's not Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah is not in the Torah. So we're, we finished the holidays, and now we, we're starting. There's two things. First of all, we have, and it's, it's, a little bit un, un, it's a little unclear from the Pesukim, but if you take a look at chapter 24, Hashem says to Moshe to command the Jewish people to bring to you Shemen Zayed Zach, pure olive oil, Katit Lama'ar that was crushed for illumination, Lahalot Ner Tamid, to bring up an eternal light, and then it talks about Michutz Parochet, outside of the parochet of the Edus, da, 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 we're gonna have Aaron is going to set up the lights, and now we have the commandment to light the menorah. There's a conversation in the in the, in the portion where we're talking about two different uses of olive oil. Is there a ner tamid or is the menorah the ner tamid? If you ever gone to you know sometimes a show will have an eternal flame, usually it's over like the Aaron Kodesh or something. Um, so the, that's the question: Are there two things going on here, or one thing that's going on here? Um, if anybody's interested, I listened to a fabulous, fabulous podcast, heartbreakingly, but amazing. Um, and she used, she talks about, um, uh, about this idea of being crushed for illumination. And if anybody wants, it was on human and holy. It was a conversation with Malky Ruddle. So if anybody wants to listen to it, it was really very, very beautiful, but I'm not going to share her point because if anybody wants it, you can go there. So then we have the conversation of the menorah. We have the idea of making the lechem upon him. And we have, we're going to go over here. We have a weird story. 
Okay, if you take a look at chapter 24, verse 10. Okay, we're having this conversation about where they can eat, the Kohanim and the Nair, da da, right? Okay, and now we have a story. Now, Tyre does not tell us many stories. Okay, it doesn't tell us many stories with like, like random. Okay, it's a random, it's, it looks like a random story. Okay, Aviv, chapter 24, verse 10, go. Which is a fancy word for curse. <laughs> so they brought him to Moshe. The name of his mother was Shlomis, daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Don. They placed him under guard and verified themselves through Hashem. Okay. So what's, so what's, what's the story? There's a random story. This person had some kind of altercation, a Jewish person, um, and, he, and, and he goes out and he, and he curses God, right? So Rashi and the Mepharsha talk about what happened. The Jewish camp was set up, and the way the camp was set up was by tribes. Now, we know that if you're Jewish or not goes by your... Father? Jewish or not goes by your mother. Tribe goes by your father. father. So here was somebody who had a problem. He had a problem. He had a Jewish mother. He didn't have a Jewish father. So the question was, where should he go? Where should he pitch his tent? Where should he be incorporated into the community? Um, and his mother was from the tribe of Don. So he tried to set up his tent by the tribe of Don. Mm. And the tribe of Don said, Mm-mm. you don't belong here. Now, it, it wasn't just a question of where you put your tent in the desert. The question had to be when we went to the land of Israel and we divided the, 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 the land would he get a portion with them? And they, and they end up going to motion. They have this whole court case. And um, at the end of the court case, uh, oh, so what happens was he leaves the court. He has this court case. He's found, the tribe of Don is found correct. He is found, well, not guilty, but like you don't have a place here. And he leaves the court and he blasphemes. He curses God. And, um, and then they hold on to him. They put him into some sort of jail situation because they don't know what to do with him. They, they don't know what the law is. And if, the, if we, and if we would have continued, which I stopped her, we, Hashem says to Moshe that they end up killing this person and they stone him and all the people stone him. And that's the end. That's a very weird story. Yeah. It's a very weird story. So I want to say two things. One is 100% made up. <laughs> I made it up. And one, I, one, is, from, one is from the Rebbe. So we're going to start with the Rebbe because that's more, that's more authentic. Um, the Rebbe raises the question. Um, it's a weird, like, okay, this is my words, okay? This is not like a direct quote from the Rebbe because it doesn't talk like this, right? But why is Hashem, why is Torah bringing this story that seems like an outlier situation? Meaning, you could just say, you're not allowed to curse God. If you curse God, then, you know, the penalty is death, right? Why do you have to bring this 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 outlier case where it's clearly somebody who was in a painful situation, they just lost, and they exploded. Why? Why, why is that where we learn a lesson from? Like, what are we, why does Tony even have to give us this story? What are we learning about this story? And one of the things that Rebbe talks about is the idea of reminding us how precious every single individual is. We could look and say, this person, just whatever. 
irrelevant. They, their voice doesn't count. Their pain doesn't count. And the was highlighting the fact that the Torah tells us the story and doesn't, yes, it's, yes, it's also to teach us a lesson about somebody who curses Hashem. And it's not, by the way, as in all cases of, cap, of, of the Jewish court killing people, it's not so easy to actually do. Just putting out that disclaimer, you know, for all the times we got upset, don't worry, we're not all going to get killed because of that. Mm-hmm. But, but the fact is that Hashem cares enough and doesn't just ignore and say, this is somebody, you know, ah, they don't, ma- they don't matter. Look how they talk anyway. They're irrelevant. No, they're important and they're valuable and we want their story in Torah, even if it's, and, and we're going to learn a lesson from it, but they as a person are still very, very important. So that's one thing that I, I saw from the Rebbe. The other thing, and this is my made-up tire, 100%, okay? I have no source for it except for little pieces that I put together. Um, so we know that uh, this, this person, we don't, know his, we don't know his name, we know his mother's name, but um, first of all, this is, this is not my made-up part. This is actually from Tyra. Um, if you remember the story of Moshe killing an Egyptian, it was this person's father. We're putting those dots back together over here, right? So when it talks about the Ish Mitzri, the Chacham the, the say Ish Mitzri, Ish Mitzri, we talk about the same person over here. Wow. So his mother's from the tribe of Dan. He comes and he tries to settle himself with the tribe of Dan, and the tribe of Dan was, had, in Yiddish we say, they had rechts on their side. They were right. He didn't belong in their territory, and they said, sorry, you can't stay with us, Okay. But, and here's where my made-up tire is. Well, this is not yet. But we know that the tribe of Dan was given a name. They were called Ma'asif Lechalamachanis. They were called the ones who gather everything of all the camps. When the Jews went through the desert, and we had a lot of people going through the desert, the tribe of Dan that had a lot of people was the last tribe to move whenever they moved from point A to point B. And the tribe of Dan used to spread out across the length of the camp. The camp of the Jewish people was 12 miles long. It was a square, like a 12 miles by 12 miles. They would spread out the entire length, and as they moved from point A to point B, they would pick up everything that people had dropped. Okay? And historically, the, it talks about in the Gemara, that the tribe of Dan used to incorporate a lot of converts. They used to gather in souls for Hashem. And so this is my made of Tyra. There are times in our life that we are right for refusing somebody something but it doesn't mean that we don't spend the rest of our life making up for that. Because they didn't include him. And they were right. Halacha was on their side. He did not have a place for them. But where is the place, it feels to me, and again, this is 100% my made-up Tyra, that they, as a tribe, they spend the rest of their tribal existence sort of making up for that place of, being not, of not being inclusive and working to include everybody. Um, and I think it's a very powerful lesson. I think it's, there are times that when we do the right thing, halacha, we're doing the right thing according to halacha, it could still hurt. It could still, we could still be pained by what we have to do. Um, and, and, uh, and then how do we deal with it afterwards is a different, kind of, is a different conversation. Um, and that, so that's my made-up Tyra. The first one in Rivka Marga's book of... Uh, yes. If they reject this guy because he was a part of the tribe, because his father, like, but they're accepting girls, it really makes sense. So that's what I'm saying. That's what, first of all, it's not that they're accepting girls. It's like, for, 
it's not that the gear then becomes meaning it's not that the gear then becomes part of their tribe, but in 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 uh, in Gemara it talks about the idea of the ma'asiv chalamachnis about them being inclusive was a place of them bringing gerim into the world into into. I don't know what it means because they don't come into their tribe. I, but that's what, but that's my that's exactly my point that there's a place where there there is this space of where do we deal with this? We were right. They were right not to include him. You know. You say the same about the girls. What? They didn't have to take them in. No, I don't know if it's that they took them in as far as seeking. I don't know exactly what it means as far as that they brought Garam in, like, because we don't, we know, we don't, Judaism does not encourage com, uh, conversion. We're not looking for Garam. So I'm not sure what it means that they were bringing them in. That's what the Gemara describes them. Maybe. I don't, again, I don't know what it means. You know, is it because they were the judges and so they were in charge of the conversion? I don't know exactly what it means. It just, I just know that... They were judges? was judges. Most of the judges came from their, from their tribe. Um... So I don't know what it means practically. They, I mean, they weren't going looking for good talent and saying, come, you should become Jewish. Do you know what I mean? That wasn't what the, that's not what it means, that they, were, that, they were bring, that they were bringing converts. But that's what the Gemara describes them as. And again, maybe it is because of, of the judges. I'll look into it and see if I come up with a better answer. Okay. Um, so what, what was supposed to happen? What, what, what was supposed to happen? Like, how, where, do you, where would this person have gone? Right, so first of all, there... It's a good question, and, and I think it becomes a very relevant question for us as a, as a nation today. Like, we have lots of people who fit into the category if we don't have a tribe. I mean, first of all, not today, none of us have a tribe, right? So Mashiach's going to come. That's going to be added to the list of the things that he's going to have to clear up. I, I will say, and this is not based on anything except my whatever, all the Kohanim fight with me. They're like, we're going to take over all of your Shalai. It, it doesn't seem like... You know, how uh, Hong Kong went back to, to the Chinese after, you know, 99 years. Like, all the ter- that Back in the day, that's what happened in biblical times. The ancestral lands went back to the, to the original owners all the time. I don't actually know that that's going to happen when Mashiach comes. You know, does that mean that you own this house and now you're going to get kicked down? Some of- I, I, I'm skeptical personally about that, but that's my, my emotional thing. What does it mean... On a, on a national level, when Mashiach comes, I don't know what it means. Meaning, at the time of the desert, it was a, it was a valid question. And then there was questions of being beyond that space or not you know, between the spaces. Like if you picture the Jews camping in a box, there are spaces that are not under a flag. There's places for people to be. It just, when, and I hear the pain of I should be included and I'm not included. I, I, I hear that and I think like, I don't know what it meant then, and I for sure don't know what it means coming back into it. And, and the truth of the matter is, we as a tribal, um, you know, as tribes, it took us a while to learn how to be a nation and not tribal. But we've moved past that tribal place. It doesn't mean that we're not going to go back to some sort of, I don't know what it would mean, like another line on your two dots of hood, you know? You're Jewish and you come from a tribe or whatever. Like, I don't know what it's going to be practically speaking when Mashiach comes. I, I don't know the answer to that. But like there was, it's, there's place in the clouds that are still, there's still, there was still place for him. But he said, this is where I want my place to be. He wasn't the only person. We had all of these people who came from Egypt, you know, who needed a place to be. It's, 
And this would have, like, was, is this something that would have been more of an issue for men than for women? Because for women, like, like, if I wanted land, like, I could technically just marry. You don't get land. I don't get land, but, if, like, say, like, my father's not Jewish regardless. Right. I could just marry. Well, but, yes, but I'm just saying... It wouldn't, for a woman who isn't given land, mm-hmm. except very rare exceptions, yeah. um, you, you're, not, you're not counted so much as a tribe. Mm-hmm. You go to your husband's tribe. Mm-hmm. You're from your father's tribe to your husband's tribe. If you don't have your father's tribe, you're going to marry. You're gonna be in a, and, and what practical ramifications does it have anyway? Meaning coming into the land of Israel had practical ramifications. Where, where's your house going to be, right? Um, what does it mean going into like a messianic space? I don't know what it means. You know, what, I don't know what it means spiritually to be part of a tribe, you know, and it's interesting, some brackets, um, so, you know, we're counting Sphira, we mentioned this once or twice or three times over the last, you know, couple of weeks, but, um, so there's a, so the, in the Hayyamim, it says, I don't know if you, if you, I don't know how much, of, as, I don't know how much of Sphira anybody's saying, but at the end of every day, there's a Yihiratzon that says that, oh no, not, sorry, not for Sphira. Not true. It's not for Sphira. For the Nasi, in, in uh, the beginning of Nisan, when we were saying the tribes, and there was a tribe, there was a, each tribe, each, each prince of a tribe brought a, brought a set of sacrifices every single day. And at the end of, and we say that, we say that at the beginning of Nisan, and at the end we say Yihiratzon. And it says, if I'm from this tribe, Hashem should give me all the spiritual energies of this tribe. So the Alter Rebbe told his brother-in-law, who was a Kohen, who knew what his tribe was, that he should still say the Yihiratzon for every single one of the tribes. So I don't know what it means to be part of a tribe you today. Can't guarantee the Kohen is now a Kohen. Well, in this particular case, let's go out on a limb and say that the Alter Rebbe actually knew that he really was a Kohen. But he still said he should say the, the Yihiratzon, what if I'm part of another tribe? I don't know what it means spiritually to be part of a tribe. We, we haven't had it for thousands of years. So I don't know how it would impact our, our, uh, our space. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the end of the Parsha seems to be, it's so interesting because Moshe says, take this person and stone them. And then he sort of goes into like a little bit of a, like a, a halacha lesson, and he goes a quick recap of the laws of mishpatim, all the laws of damages. If you kill somebody, then you should be killed, and you, uh, all different kinds of things. And if you damage something, you have to pay for it. Um, a, if a shever, tacha shever, this is like very famous, an eye for an eye, a bone for a bone. And this is where Rashi says, we're not actually talking about uh, we're not actually talking about poking out somebody's eye if you lose, if they poke out your eye by mistake. Um, but it's a, it's a monetary situation going on over here. And we actually learn this. We learn the idea that it's not an eye for an eye, literally, from Parsha's MR over here. Um, there's like this little recap, recapitulation going on over here of, of, of the laws of, of Mishpatim. Um, there's one law for everything. It's, it's just like an interesting kind of situation. So I was listening to, um, I was listening to Rabbi Paltiel and he was talking about the idea that the, the laws of Mishpatim are actually, are actually written in the Torah twice. Once over here in Parshas Emor, which is in Vayikra, and the main place where they come is the laws of Mishpatim, which is in the book of Shemos, which is in the book of Exodus. 
And, um, and we know that the book of Exodus is also called Sefer HaGeula, the book of redemption, right? And we spoke about this many times, that true redemption is not just what I'm not doing, but the place of what I am doing, right? Um, if anybody here has ever been to any of the 12-step meetings, we always, they talk about a higher power, the idea that you're not free on your own, you're just going to become enslaved to something else, but the place of a higher power gives you the ability to transcend um, whatever the limit, whatever the, whatever it is that's enslaving you, right? So when we talk about mishpatim in the context of redemption, there's that place of us working our way to being free and not being encumbered and not being tied down by all kinds of things, interactions and, you know, all those money issues. Mishpatim is a lot, a lot of money issues, the damages and, and laws of purchases, all this kind of stuff. Like, the place of true freedom is when we can understand that everything that we have, including our money, is in the service of Hashem. And our true freedom is when we don't get bogged down by those details. But then, when you have the, when you have the repetition here in Vayikra and the, 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 the motto, no, that's not the right word, the motto, the motif maybe of Vayikra is holiness. Right? It's the book of the Kohanim. It's how do we not just do what we need to do, but how do we raise ourselves even higher? Mishpatim gets repeated again because there's the, the way as we look at all of our monetary stuff, as we're getting out of our slavery, where we're not enslaved to it, but now when we look at it over here, we're like, but how do I make it holy? How do I take it and how do I make those, all, those, all those interactions and all those... Um, all those places of contact that could be contentious, they're not just not contentious, but they're also going to be holy. And I, I, I want to give us a bracha before we, we didn't finish, but I just want to give us a bracha that we are able to make that transition from doing the right thing because we're doing the right thing, which is also, let's all, <laughs> we're just going on the assumption we're all doing the right thing because it's the right thing, but to then move it into doing the right thing because it's the holy thing to do, because it's the godly thing to do, not just because, which is really like a step up, um, but I, I want to give us a bracha that we, we should be able to do that, to be able to not just do it because it's the right thing, but to be able to see that it's the holy thing to do and we're going to become uh, enriched and closer to Hashem by whatever it is that we're doing over here. Okay. Now, oh, we have time for time. Beseder. Let's go back to the beginning of the Parsha. Okay? Yay, we finished the whole Parsha. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know, I feel like I, I must have skipped something. Probably we'll, we'll go through, we'll go through Chomish and we'll say, oh, we've got that. Okay. Um, okay, so I want to I look at the beginning of the Parsha a second. Okay, so again, we have, if you look at the Parsha, if you look at the first Pasuk in Hebrew, you're going to see something very weird. Okay? V'yem Hashem al-Maisha. Hashem says to Moshe, Emor ala Kohanim b'nei Aaron, speak to the, the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, va'amarta lehem, and say to them, l'nefesh lo yitamibamav, do not become impure from anybody in, your, in your, your people. Okay? What is redundant in this, parsh, in this Pasuk? And I'll give us a hint. It's also going to be the name of our Parsha. Yeah. 
We have emor twice in the in the pasuk. Oh, Rashi says the repetition is intended to yeah. admonish the adults about their children, also that they should teach them to avoid defilement. Right. Okay. So. What is Rashi's first questioning? Why do we have this repeat of Amarta? Emar ve Amarta. If you take a look at the Pasuk, it says, Emar le Kohanim, say it to the Kohanim. Okay, so then say it. What else? Why do you have to say and say it to them? And as Amber pointed out, Rashi says, Emar ve Amarta. You have both of those expressions, to say and to say. And he says, Lahaz her malaktanim, to warn the bigs for the littles. Okay? Um, one of the things, again, back to Sphira, we know that lahazir doesn't only mean to warn, it also means, anybody remember from your Sphira? Lahazir, what does Zohar mean? Shine. To shine, to illuminate. So it's not just lahazir to make sure the big people, that the big people should make sure that the little people do the right thing, but they should do it in a way of lahazir. It should be illuminated, it should be beautiful, and it should be lit up for them, and that's what the, why they're going to do it. There's a lot, a lot of conversation that goes on over here. What does this mean? To warn the big ones about the little ones. So one of the Mepharshim that I thought was super interesting talks about the idea that in general, in general, um, we don't have this, exp- you don't have this expression like to warn the, the, the big ones should like warn or illuminate for the young ones, right? Because let's say, for example, Shabbos, right? They go to their other friends. They go play at their friends' houses, their friends are also keeping Shabbos. They don't need a warning. Like, whatever the messages that they're getting at home are being reflected all over the place. So they don't need any special warning. But when you're talking about a Kohen, they're in a different situation. And what happens is, is that they have a whole different set of rules that their friends don't have to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the Kohanim, here's an interesting thing. My daughter is married to a Kohen. She's not allowed to take her son, who's two years old, to the cemetery. There's a conversation in the Gemara if a pregnant, and it's not in the, sorry, it's not in the Gemara, it's in the more modern codifiers, because it wasn't possible in the Gemara. If an if a Aishas Kohen, if a wife of a Kohen who is pregnant has to find out the sex of her child, because then could she not go into a cemetery if she's carrying a male Kohen? Okay? Whoa. So... But, but everybody else could do it. It's not a problem for anybody else. The, everybody, you know, let's say, for example, you know, we, we wash our hands for bread. That is for us helping the Kohanim, right? We know that there's the Kohanim, before they eat holy food, they have to wash their hands. They have to be in a state of tahara, and they also have to wash their hands. So everybody washes for bread to remind the Kohanim that they should wash for bread. But let's say that's, that's the norm now. But what if that wasn't the norm? And little Kohen is having his sandwich and he has to go wash for bread and nobody else is going to wash for bread and, and he has to be warned that you're special, you're a Kohen, you have to be very careful. I'll tell you a personal, you know, my, my Mendel was, when he was very little, we used to live in the old city and one of the really cool things about living in the old city is like we're close to all these kind of really interesting things and he came back one day, it was Rosh Chodesh and he told me that we went and I forgot where in the old city they went they went to go see, I don't remember what it was. And he says, oh, but Yaakov didn't come. And I'm like, why didn't Yaakov come? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, Yaakov's a Kohen. He's not allowed to go there. Right. Okay? Yeah. They went someplace that there was going to be a grave. 
in the old city. They were going to someplace to daven. Yaakov was five years old, just like Mendel was five years old. But the sensitivity and the, of course he couldn't go. Like, Ma, how do you not know that he can't go there because there's a graveyard? He's going, he's not allowed to go there. Um, today, even though we are all considered Tameh, we still, Kohanim still have the prohibition about adding layers of Tuma onto their, onto Tuma. So if you ever see in Israel, sometimes you go to the hospital and outside there will be a sign that says, as Hayral Kohanim, there's a warning for Kohen, because if you transport a dead body in a, in a house, everything in the house becomes Tameh. So they say, if there's a body being transported through the hospital, the morgue is actually in Israel's double walled away from the rest of the hospital. But if there's a, a body in transport, they put a sign out, Kohanim, don't come in. Okay, that means even today it becomes a real thing. So you need an extra warning for the Kohanim because their friends who are keeping shops in kosher don't have to do the things that they have to do because they're not Kohanim. You had a question, you had a question. In theory, most cities basically just one big graveyard. In theory, I would say most of the world is probably one big graveyard. <laughs> if we're going to, like, I'm just saying. Like, the amount of stuff that's going on down there, like, why? Uh, it's, but it's not, like, like. Why? Nah, for sure not. That's the, that's the least place that it's going to have. It's the rest of the, the listen, the, one of the reasons that we don't have a subway system in Israel, by and large, is because there's antiquities when you go down. And there's, and there's, and no, and there's become, there's like, there's dead bodies. Very often they, um, they dig down and they find bodies and, and like you have to rebury them. It's like, it doesn't matter if they're only bones now. Like it's a, it's a big thing, you know? So there's, I was once talking to Adi, and um, her husband's a client, and she told me that there's a f- one flight a day out of Newark Airport to Israel that is guaranteed not to have bodies on board. So Kohanim used to, I don't know if it still is, but like Kohanim used to take one flight out of Newark because for sure there were no bodies on board. Like, it's like a, it's like a you know, it's, it's, we don't even think about those things. Like, it's just not, you know, it's just not part of our lexicon when you're not a Kohen and it's not your, so that's what is like, little Kohanim are as special as a big Kohanim and they have to be as careful as a big Kohanim. Um, I like those. Like a, it's a comment, whatever. Okay. Um, we, like, a long time ago when we were going to Israel, we, like, our flight got delayed and then we were talking to these two guys, to these two men, and they're like, we, and they're like these religious guys, and then we were, and then, like, Finally, we get out of the board because our flight was very delayed, like the, the next day. And we finally, like, we're allowed to board. And then they're like, you're not coming? They're like, no, because there's a dead body on the board. We're Kahan. I didn't right. even realize that. Yeah, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Okay, so that's, so that's one thing, which is kind of cool. And I think as an educational conversation, um, the, I think that the fact that Lahaz here to warn and Lahaz here to illuminate share the same route is very, very, very important because... We have many ways that we could give over information. One is, uh, right? And one is like, I woke everybody up a little bit. And one is, and one is like, what a schus, what a merit we have to be able to do something. Like, and how we give over that message has nothing to do with whether you're a Kohen or you're not a Kohen. It has to do with being a person. Um, and being an educator, and we all are educators, whether we're officially educators or we're not educators, we're educators in how we talk to ourselves and how we look at ourselves and how we respond to ourselves. So I want to be, I'm going to come back to this, but I want to say one more thing that I heard from, that I saw from Ravadin, Ravadin Steinsaltz. He talks about all the different um, 
mumim, all the blemishes that a Kohen is not allowed to have or an animal is not, not allowed to have. And he's like, so, like, we don't have a base of Mikdash. We're not Kohanim. We're not, like, what's the big deal? And he has a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic essay. And he talks about the idea that one of the, there's a whole slew of, of blemishes that have to do with crushed testicles and mangled and the whole, a whole shebang where, uh, where um, like, the person's essence is crushed. And he says, we don't have a base Mikdash. He says, but there is a place that we all have a base Mikdash in us and therefore we all are Kohanim. Mm-hmm. And in our relation, what, like, and he, he goes, he develops it a great level. If anybody wants, I'm happy to send him the essay. But um, he talks about the idea that we always, you know, it seems so weird that Hashem wants perfection in, his, in, his, in the base of Mikdash. You know, we always talk about a broken heart. Hashem wants a broken heart. What's this all of a sudden, this fixation on, on, on perfection, right? And so the Mephoshim talk about the idea, like, that, that uh, the bringing of a carbon is a very public situation, and you don't want anything that's going to be very distracting for, because if we have to be focused on the connection that's going on between the person, the animal, and the Kohen, if you have a Kohen who has a unibrow, for example, it's very distracting. Or it's one of the blemishes. It's one of the blemishes. Um, you know, certain things, like, so, th- so they, they're, there's this place of perfection. But he talks about the idea in a more emotional space. And he says, you know, when Hashem, yes, Hashem values a broken heart. But there's a very big difference between a broken heart and a mangled and crushed person. And a mangled and a crushed person is somebody who is... A, a broken heart comes from introspection. I could be, I should be, I'm not. That causes a broken heart. A crushed personality, a crushed sense of self, that's not coming from a good place. That's how I think I should be super holy by not being creative and not being funny and not being... My personality has to be squashed and scrunched and crushed and mangled. And he's like, God doesn't want that. You might think that it's more holy to be this. He's like, that's not what God wants. God wants perfection. Now, the problem with, uh, let's say, for example, a a complete, a a non-castrated ox, for example, they are potentially very dangerous because their force is so strong. So so. Do we then say, I'm going to take away the possibility for excellence because it could also be destructive? And I'll just sort of live, you know, who used the expression once? Quiet lives of desperation. Sort of like that middle space. I'm not going too far to any side. I'm just staying in the middle. I'm not too good. I'm not too bad. I'm just sort of in the middle. And that's not what Hashem's looking for. Hashem's not looking for us to crush our personality, to crush our sense of creativity, to crush who we are. Yes, it is a challenge to have our passion and our fire and our energy alive and kicking, but is, is it maybe easier to crush it so that we don't sin? But how much more beautiful if we can keep that passion full and flaming and holy? And that's what, and that's what the, the job is. The job is when we come, we bring karov, an animal, we bring a, a carbon, we want to bring close to Hashem, we want it to be with the full potential. 
correct. If we mess up, we have to like fix it up. And an animal that does things wrong, an animal that kills, an animal that was used for idol worship, all different kinds of things, is not allowed to be brought as a, as a carbon. But the and, and I was I was reading the essay and I was like literally almost in tears. Like this is a hundred percent where we are today. Are we vibrant in our Judaism? Are we vibrant in our relationship with Hashem? Or do we think, oh, it's more holy if I'm less. And, 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 and really, we are never more holy when we are less. We are holy when we are more and we channel it for Hashem. Channel it through carbon. We bring it close to Hashem. It doesn't mean that, you know, maybe there are things that we need to sort of, you know, file a little bit and, you know, clean up our speech a little bit and we could be funny and clean. You know what I mean? Like, all these things, I'm not saying there's, we don't have work to do on ourselves, but do we work with our complete animal or do we say, we're going to just hold it down, we're going to just squash it down and then it's going to be fine, whatever it's going to be. And really what Hashem wants is whole, full, vibrant us to come and do the best that we can in our Avedis Hashem. Okay. I have time for one more. Okay, now... Um, as Amber pointed out, the Rashi, the first Rashi, talking about to warn the, the bigs on the littles, um, that's talking about here, we're talking about not becoming impure. A Kohen is not allowed to go to the funeral of the close relatives. Rabbi Zesich, and he talks about the idea that there are three places in Torah, not exclusively, but three of them are also mentioned in, in Chomish Vayikra, three different times that Rashi uses this expression, to have the older people watch the younger people. The three places that we have is about the prohibition against eating blood, against the prohibition against eating insects, and against the prohibition of being a, a, for Kohen to become tummy. And the Rebbe analyzes what is the unifying uh, situation over here. Okay? So the place of blood, which I, I don't know how many people, you know, are interested in eating blood, even though rare meat, you know, could whatever. But uh, we could argue about that. But back in the day, it was very, very common. It was, it was, you were getting a life force when you were eating blood. It was very common consumption of blood. And so the Rebbe talks about, when we talk about, can we illuminate for somebody who is less, who knows less than us, whether it's a parent and a child, or somebody who, somebody who's we ha- are in the position to influence, which is also gedolim and um, What? How can we tell them not to do something that is so so common? It is all over the place. Everybody's doing it. How can we demand of them to be a little bit more? And when Rashi tells us about, specifically about eating blood, we should not shirk away from the fact that everybody's doing it, and therefore, how could we fight that? Yes, we can fight City Hall. Yes, we can fight the common, wherever it is. Just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean that we can't educate ourselves and the people around us to behave differently. The second thing that the the Rebbe talks about, where Rashi says in relation to eating creepy crawlies, eating shrutzim, it seems to be when we talk about what kind of person can we speak to. And in most of the Western world, and I'm not talking about parts of the world where this is very common to eat bugs, but in most of the, most of the Western world, world, those are not the stuff that we eat. Whatever we do or we don't eat, 
creepy crawlies still have stayed off our list of things to eat, even though my kids have shown me pictures from some certain countries where they sell you bugs on a stick. And I'm like, I don't even want to see the picture. Like, don't even show me the picture. I don't want to see the picture, okay? Yes, I'm squeamish. Um, and, and the attitude that we talk about somebody who's eating in our culture is eating bugs is somebody who's like, in Yiddish is an expression, a daskinik. They're just going to do it just like this to get a reaction, right? So we could say, I have nothing to say to this person. How could I, how could I say anything to this person? They, they're not... They're just being reactionary to whatever they want to re- react to. How could I educate them? How could I teach them? How could I inspire them? And I was like, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the people who are the bug eaters, who are ready to just, I don't know, he didn't say this expression, but like just gross everybody out with their behavior and you know, see if I get noticed. Yes, we have the ability and the obligation to reach out to those kind of people as well. And we talk about Tumantara, how do you measure it? You don't look different. You don't feel different. There's nothing quantifiable. It's so ethereal. How do you explain to somebody that something, you came, you were in the hospital and a dead body was being transported and now you are what? Like, how does, like, what does it, what does this even mean, right? And I was like, don't be afraid to teach great concepts to people. Even if it's not tangible, even if you can't weigh it and measure it and quantify it, they, a neshama is open to hearing all of those messages. So I want to give us a bracha. I want to give us a bracha. Emmer ve Marta, we get to be the big and the small at the same time. We need to speak to ourselves. The messages that we need to give ourselves um, need to be kind, need to be, we should not be kicking ourselves. You're doing this again. How many times have we discussed that you shouldn't be doing this? Oh my gosh, you're such a gross person. You'll never reach spirituality. I want to give us a bracha that we understand that we have the ability to influence, first of all, ourselves and second of all, people around us. It's not enough for us to just say, I'll just say this to other people. This is my editing over here. We need to start with speaking to ourselves. We need to say, where is the place in me that I am an adult in this particular situation? And I will speak to the part of me that's a child and is reacting like a child. And I'm going to try to, uh, to lift up my child because when I do that, then I can spread it out and then I can influence beyond and to the others and to the people around me. And when we get used to using this language of gentle and kind and illuminating and warning, yes, but, but warning in a way that's illuminating, not crushing, then we have the ability to change the world. And we should be blessed to see it in our lifetime. Right now, before we all have to leave, we should be able to see that change. We should be that change and we should be able to see the, uh, the ultimate gula and then we'll figure out where we all sit in the, in the camp. L'chaim.